Hello and welcome everyone. I am Jake Wurzak and this is Masters of Moments. This podcast features conversations with the top entrepreneurs and business leaders around hospitality, real estate, investing, and company building. We explore the ideas, strategies, and approaches that brought them to where they are today. Hear the insights, behind the scenes secrets, and methods you can't find anywhere else. This podcast is for you if you are a seasoned investor, an upstart entrepreneur, or someone looking to break into the real estate and hospitality investing world. I would love to hear from you by tweeting me at jwerzak on Twitter. And if you have enjoyed this show, I'd be incredibly grateful if you followed us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever podcast platform you listen to. We record on video, so you can always find all of our episodes on YouTube and be sure to subscribe. Thank you so much for joining me and enjoy the show. So Glenn, I want to hear about how you decided to leave Blackstone and also what you were doing at Blackstone for 20 years, because that is an incredible <laughs> dog, career. Dog years. That is, uh, the dog years? <laughs> well, the meaning like it felt like in 20 years, it sort of felt like 80, but in a good way, right? You learned so much in that short period of time. It was, it was really unbelievable. So what did you, what made you want to leave Blackstone? It was honestly a very hard decision. Like, you know, we were still buying a lot of hotels, which is where, you know, in the later phase of my time there, I was focusing mostly on in our U.S. asset management platform. But at the end of the day, you know, 20 years is a long time to have been there. I was there where I was the 75th employee in all of Blackstone when I was hired or something about that, let's say. Wow. So, you know, it was 97 when I started. They didn't, hadn't even raised the first real estate fund. We were just finishing the raise of the first real estate fund at that time. They had been investing out of the RTC deals and things in the early 90s out of the main flagship private equity fund. But real estate was fairly new product at that point. And that was where I had been coming in. So when I joined them there, we were jack of all trades. We were doing a little bit of everything. So I was doing office buildings. I was doing multifamily. I was, you know, in- industrial, all kinds of stuff. And not much hotel at that time early on. They didn't really like hotels and asset class. It wasn't until over time that they started investing very heavily in the space once we understood a little bit better. And then I just focused on that almost entirely. Fell in love with the business. I love the fact it's both real estate and operating business and a platform at the same time. And so many intricacies between how that all comes together. So from my standpoint, really, it was a time where I had three kids that I didn't see very often that was on the road constantly, or I was in the office until all hours of the night. And so for me, it was a lifestyle decision that was very fortunate to have been there when we went public, was able to build a little bit of a balance sheet on my own and said, you know, I'm going to go try this and see, see what it's like. A lot of consultation with my wife, a lot of smart advice sort of saying, you know, at some point it's okay to retire from the Yankees, right? And that type of thing. But it was a hard decision. It was sort of like that. Like you're playing, you're at the pinnacle of of one of the top real estate shops in the world, right? And decide to say, I'm going to hang up the cleats and try something different. It was not the easiest decisions, but one I, not to begrudge my time at Blackstone, but looking back on it now, I'm like, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have traded it for the world. It's been, it's been amazing. It's one that people definitely struggle with a lot because there's a lot of safety working for a big institution like that. Sure. And there's a lot of risk going out and starting your own firm and becoming an entrepreneur, what about you and your mindset made you take the leap versus <laughs> just stay there and security? I, you know, we were taught at Blackstone to treat it like you were the owner. So we weren't a show and we started as a small fund. Like we were a $350 million fund when we first started. 
And so that obviously grew into being the billions that they are today. But we were taught very young at the at the Blackstone that you were treated in this like you owned it. You weren't just doing a job. You were the owner. You needed to look at it like you were the owner. So from the standpoint of feeling like I had the right training, it wasn't so hard coming out of a large institutional background of having to go then figure out how to actually manage one single asset. It was sort of that was what was instilled in us very early on in the early days. Now, obviously, we got bigger when we were Blackstone. So then they started having more portfolio companies and others that were doing a little bit more of that day-to-day. And that was another factor for me was that as we got more successful and as we got bigger, we were higher up on the food chain and we were doing more sort of making larger thematic decisions and larger portfolio investments that you weren't touching the real estate as much anymore. And so I missed that aspect of it. So I didn't, I didn't know how to build a company necessarily, but I knew how to manage the assets and manage the real estate. So I was comfortable from that standpoint. What would surprise listeners the most about what you learned during your time at Blackstone? We were a tight family. Like it was, it was, you know, people I think will look at Blackstone today and be like, oh man, it must be sharp elbows. It must be so political, so difficult, like to be then work there and those types of things. But we were, we had a great time. We really enjoyed doing what we were doing. We loved working together. We had just a, a great, sort of culture. And I credit Schwartzman with this. He absolutely hammered home the idea of like culture is paramount. You need to like what you're doing and you need to like who you're working with, right? So if you don't have both of those things, something's going to break or maybe you need to find a different place to, to be because there's not really, there wasn't a lot of room for that nonsense from that standpoint, right? And so you felt like everybody was in the boat. You're all rolling in the same direction. You're all sort of like building this team. And we were seeing a lot of success, right? We went from 370 million in the first fund to first time. And then we got into billions of dollars. And now they're just, you know, I can't even keep track of where they are now. They've been so successful, but they brought in an institutional, they had an institutional bias towards how they want to look at things, but a real sort of culture led team environment that, I think is what created a lot of the success because everybody was really all in, right? One of the things I think is so cool about Blackstone, unlike some of their peers, is they've actually created multiple billionaires outside of the original two founders. Yep. And that's very rare in terms of, but it speaks to the culture and these little things. I'm curious to know if as you were building your company, what like little insights you took, whether it was culture related or incentive based or just process related sure. and rolled into your company? Yeah, I think there's no doubt that the part of having that ownership mentality was also actually being an owner. Like even if it was like some, you know, we were, we would be counting intensive basis points, right? <laughs> when the funds got bigger. So you were talking about like, percentages that were minuscule, but were meaningful, right? Yep. To the people that were working on it. And it was spread very widely so that the, the whole floor sort of felt like they were all working on it. They all owned something like that. So when I was starting that, I, I was very much focused on, I've been fortunate enough to be at a place where they believed in sort of sharing that potential upside, right? Own, having an ownership in a company or an ownership of that particular deal so that you're creating that alignment of incentives, right? It's all about having everybody doing what's right for the asset, for the investors, for all of those things, because you're doing it what's right for you, right? And so when you have that alignment, it it all sort of naturally works out really well. But I agree with you. I think Blackstone has been a special case from that standpoint, the way that, you know, Pete and Steve back in the very beginning sort of set up the business and, and how they've then kept that going through multiple 
iterations of how they were, you know, how they're going to grow that and so many different business lines that they've then just created that same benefit to a lot of people. I want to go back to how you create incentives at Obterra, but first you mentioned that you fell in love with hospitality because it combines both an <laughs> operating business and a real estate business. Yep. And that's what I say. And that's what all my other hotel friends say. And you're one of those people. Right. But everyone not in hotels say that's the reason why they hate hotels. <laughs> exactly. So right. how do I think about this? <laughs> I don't, you know, I don't know. I don't, it, it's, and it's sometimes I, I would think when I was mentioned to you even earlier, like there's parts of the hospitality business where the headache factor is really, really high. And so you're sometimes saying like, do I really enjoy this operating business? Wouldn't it be a hell of a lot easier if I just owned a bunch of industrial sheds and just had to worry about leasing them every three years or something like that. But I, I think that if you're if you're that person, if you're into that, you know it. And if you're into if you do it well, then it doesn't become that scary factor anymore, right? It really is about how do you incentivize people not only monetarily, but but also with relative to giving them the space and ability to grow, to challenge them into what they may not be doing already, where they can sort of see a new path of something that they hadn't thought of that they were capable of before, but you're sort of pushing them in out of the, out of that comfort zone and into that area. And, you know, managing wide swaths of, of people all the way from a general manager down to, you know, lower low line employees and making sure that they know that they're appreciated for what they're doing, for understanding that their job is tough and underappreciated a lot of times. It's like all of that pieces of it or, or sort of that human element to, to real estate that you don't get in a lot of other asset classes or many really. Right. It's why we love hotels. It's, it is, it is, but it also means there's a lot of bodies involved and therefore there can be drama. Right. So the start of new real estate cycles, I think always bring the most opportunity for success. What did you learn over those 20 years at Blackstone that is really shaping your investment perspective right now? You know, it goes back to, I think, and this is all credit John Gray with this, is that when you have a conviction and a theme, then go after it and go big if you can. If you have the ability, you need to go and really back up the truck when you see something coming and you got to do, you got to do something like that. So, you know, early 2011, 12, when they didn't own a single select service hotel, that was really not anywhere we played. It was all full service or luxury resort, that type of stuff. And there was a sea change after having bought La Quinta and, and extended stay to understanding that, well, this business model is really powerful. We need to now go buy stuff that's Hilton Marriott, Hyatt branded, but in the select service space. So there was a tear on that, but it wasn't just like a little drip. It was like zero to 200 and something hotels in the span of two years, two and a half years, something like that. So that same sort of conviction and what do you believe the theme is going to be? And for Optera, you know, and and now with my partner in Charleston, Sanjay Patel and the, the Montford group, where we've been focused on, similar to you, the southeastern region. We saw that early in 2018 and obviously COVID supercharged that to a, to a great extent. But the belief that coming out of COVID, it was a little tough, rocky from when you're first starting trying to get deal flow and things going. Yep. Then COVID hits and you're like, whoa, screeching halt. But then coming out of it, it was like, now's the time. So we went from zero to 13 hotels and since, you know, sort of end of COVID and we're developing a couple others now. So we're, we're hitting that stride because we felt like that and it's all in the Southeastern region. And that's where we sort of feel like our, our prime area is. And so developing from 
Blackstone saying, if you've got a theme, go after it and go get it. That's what we've been doing. And does that theme only include limited service hotels or is there also a full service component, lifestyle component? The Moxie's a little bit of a right. blurred line there. Moxie's, Moxie's definitely a blurred line, which we like because it's sort of lifestyle hotel with a select service operating model, right? right? So it's a little bit of the best of both worlds if you if you mix it right. Yeah, and we're, we're obviously working on that, having just delivered our Moxie in Charleston back in April here of 2023. We're building another one in Charlotte now. So we've got a 208 room Moxie going up, coming out of the ground as we speak. And, you know, if we could do more of those, we would, we, we would like it. I know you've got one going in St. Petersburg, yep. so that's going to be a great one as well. So from our standpoint, we've got more, as I was saying, we've got a lot of things now in our pre-development pipeline and our development pipeline that are going to be more lifestyle. So we have a, a site in Charleston that's going to be a Thompson hotel, and we're hoping to get that, you know, financed and kicked off, you know, end of the year, maybe beginning part of next year. And then we're under contract on a building in Historic District in Savannah that we're going to do a, his, a, a conversion from office building to we actually, we just got a committee approval. So I'm allowed to say it now. So it's going to be a Ritz-Carlton and, oh, res, wow. and residences in, in Historic Savannah. So we're negotiating the HMA and getting through all of that, but we got approval from the committee on that one. So it'll be a hundred room historic office conversion into hotel rooms and then 20, 20 residences inside of that project as well. Amazing. All right. Well, let's just hang right there for a second because we looked at a deal too in Savannah earlier this year. Unbelievable market, so much diverse demand, great airport, great industry, great tourism. When you're looking at that deal, how do you pick Ritz-Carlton and how do you also make the evaluation to include residences in that? And then taking it one step further, are these, you know, for sale residences totally separate from the hotel? Is there going to be a condo hotel component? How do you kind of evaluate all of that? So, you know, it's it's one of these interesting deals where we aren't it's because it's an office building and has existing tenants, we were able to structure it such that we don't have to we're not completing the acquisition of the actual building until you know, middle part of next year. So we've got all this time to do all of our pre-development and planning. So I'll tell you. We've got an idea of what we think it's going to be, but it's not perfectly formed yet, right? So we did a lot of work relative to what's the right size key count versus residences. It's definitely going to be branded residences to answer your question. So it will be Ritz-Carlton residences, and there will be opportunity if somebody wants to put it back into a rental pool that they can do so. You know, it'll be designer-led. Martin Burdinsky out of, out of London and New York office is doing our design. Home run. Yeah. So we're really excited. We just kicked off with them after NYU last week. So Super excited to be working with them on that. And so there'll be, you know, three design choices for the residences and those types of things. So it'll be pretty prescriptive and within the Ritz sort of framework. Relative to Ritz, you know, I don't know that that's an easy question to answer. It sort of felt right for that market, just in terms of what we felt the brand name Cachet would have with the travelers and where they're coming from and and sort of what isn't there. You're obviously trying to do an analysis of like, okay, how many Marriott rooms are in a market versus Hilton versus other Perry you know, Lane, JW. Exactly. Yeah. So you know, it was not an easy decision. We certainly, you know, love our friends at Hilton too when we were studying the Waldorf and whether that could work. But for at the end of the day, it sort of felt like the building and everything spoke more Ritz than it did than it did others. And I didn't hear you say I'm gonna start my own brand. So how much right. did the independent factor weigh into your analysis on the residential sales and just opening a luxury five star sure. hotel in Savannah? So part of the residences is it's interesting, as you probably are well aware, you can, you know, there's a certain element of being able to use a portion of that if your sales are successful early on to sell or fill some equity gap too. So there's yep. 
relative to our, our investor that was interested in doing this deal, that was appealing to them too, to say, hey, you know what, we can sell down in a sense, almost syndicate a little of their equity out of the of that by having these pre-sales and, and using some of that deposit towards the construction and things. We also feel that, you know, Historic District Savannah doesn't have a lot of product. So we think we've got something that's pretty unique relative to not having a lot of other competition that's going to be of that scale and quality. So, you know, the other challenge to that is then you don't have comps that are necessarily going to match up with exactly what you think on a per square foot basis you should be achieving and can yep. achieve. And so yep. it's that natural pull, push and pull. You're like, well, it doesn't exist. So therefore, that's why it's going to be that. I'm like, well, yeah, but these other buildings are trading at this. So, you know, there's all those things you have to work through and get very comfortable with. And so we're very fortunate to have one of our capital partners that we've worked with on a couple of our developments that has already stepped up and committed on that one. So that we know the equity stack's actually already done. It'll just be sort of, okay, what does the debt market look like when we think we're ready to launch and close on the building itself? So then that brings me to another question. You don't have a fund, right? So all of your Correct. deals are deal by deal syndication. Correct. Is that by design or Entirely. was the fund too hard? Talk about that. Yeah. So I came out of a fund world, right? Yep. And it was very powerful because when you have that capital locked up and ready to go, you can you can often dictate terms when you're on the buy side. It's right? more fun. It is certainly more fun, except when you're fundraising. Yeah. <laughs> Now, somebody could turn around and say, well, that means, Glenn, you're always fundraising. If, you're not, if you don't have a fund, you're always fundraising. And it's true to a certain extent. I think that if you know, if people know who you are and what you stand for and what your type of deals you're going to be representing, you pretty much know then as well what they're going to be interested in investing with you. And so, you know, Sunju and I have done a lot of work in cultivating some very strong high net worth families that have been great backers of our business. And that's been very fortunate. And at the same time, you know, we've got some LP, LP capitals that are institutional. And so your traditional sort of 90% capital partner coming in and 10% GP. So each deal sort of lines up pretty early on. You know whether it's going to work with the, with one particular group or, or not. And so then you know pretty quickly that you go to that group, can give them just a two-page overview and be like, hey, guys, we got a lot more work to do on this, but tell us now if you, if you hate it, because then we'll just sort of let it go. And so it sort of allows us to be nimble and allows us not to have that sort of requirement to put capital out and put it to work and maybe in times that we didn't want to, right? Like we were mentioning earlier, I haven't, this particular year, we're coming up in, you know, middle of June, we have not done a single acquisition of, of an existing asset this yet, right? Bank market dislocation, all the different things that are going on, not a lot of great product for sale. If I was sitting on a fund that was in its third plus year of investing window and knowing that that fourth year was coming and I might need to go get an extension, I might feel more pressure to go do something. And I'm not saying anybody that has a fund out there that that's what they do, but I'm sure it enters the enters the lexicon a little bit. Like I got to put this money to work. The beauty for us is we don't have to put money to work. If we see something we like, we can go get it. If we don't see anything we like, we keep our investors in touch, You know, let them know, hey, we're looking at stuff. We just don't really like it yet. We'll be back to you soon. And you can also get better promotes deal by That's deal as well. Too. Yes. Right? So having those siloed is is very powerful. So you built the Moxie. You're under construction now with the Thompson Hotel. Right. Ritz Carlton from a project standpoint is a completely different ballgame in terms of cost. Right. And you're also doing an office conversion, which is really interesting. Sure. And what everyone's talking about. So I'd like you to unpack how you kind of thought about the development budget for this and also what you've learned converting an office into a luxury hotel. So 
still unpacking that, right? I think it's not only that, but it's also historic building. So we've got a lot to do, a lot of work that we have to do with the Historic Preservation Committee locally in in Savannah, as well as the state and as well as federal. So, you know, and that becomes a component of your capital stack a little bit too, that there's tax credits available for that type of work. I think the the good news for us is because of where we're trying to take the existing building and we're making it into the Ritz, it basically means we are gutting the thing other than the exterior facade and the structural yeah. elements. So we are starting from scratch other than the fact the building's already standing and the facade on the outside is going to get repointed and touched up and done appropriately, but it's not going to be ground up, right? So we know we've got that structure piece. So the hard part about then is lining your your design of your guest rooms up with the existing windows and and sort of how does the natural light sort of play relative to what you would have if you could just do whatever you wanted, right? So that has been something we spend invested a lot of time and have a great architect that's working with us that we've worked with a lot. So she's done an amazing job of sort of really it's a it's a Tetris piece, right? You're just sort of putting all these puzzle pieces together yep. and then you have Ritz coming in and saying, well, your spa has to be X number of square feet. And you're like, oh, all right, start over, right? And so you're rejiggering everything around to a different spot and you just don't know where it's all going to fit. And then magically, at the end of the day, these architects are just unbelievable and they can get it done. So a lot of that work's already been done. The pricing is done from a, you know, I would say from what we've got, 50, 60% standpoint, but there's still going to be a lot more work that we have to do between now and then. But having the type of capital we have in this particular investment is helpful in that, it's patient. It's sort of, it's okay that our numbers are within a range. I don't have to have a pinpoint number to them yet. When I get to financing time, right? By that point, I'm going to have to have it pinpointed. But between now and then, this particular investor group has been great because they're like, all right, that sounds about right. You're going to have to still do some more discovery, some more diligence. You'll figure it out. We trust you guys. Go, go get it done. So. All right. I'm super excited for you on this deal. Yeah. I could ask a million questions on it. I'll only <laughs> ask one more. And that is when you're thinking about the capital partner and you said that they're patient. What time type of structure do you create to align your incentives, which might not be as patient as that capital to ensure that you can still make money on the project by right. delivering a successful hotel with maybe not having to exit it to someone, or maybe that is the strategy and you will exit to someone that can buy an asset like that. Sure. You know, it's it's an it's a delicate dance, right? Because you're sort of talking about how you're going to break up at some point in the future when you're still just getting together. Yeah. <laughs> right? So it never is an easy conversation. And generally, you leave it to the fact that you think you've got, you know, mindset of, of their understanding your business model. And so they know that the sale at some point is going to be the important part to to our team, you know, making a monetary success on that. Now, the same time you you can achieve some of that through you know refinancings if there is a longer hold period in those types of things but at some point you need to have some sort of a you know some sort of a put back if you need to so generally we have in our documents some sort of a buy sell trigger that that allowed for the potential monetization if it felt like we needed to be able to trigger something so generally those you know the capital partners are going to have the majority decision rights on when to sell and not sell and those types of things in the traditional with sort of the sponsor operating model but you build in certain milestones that if you've achieved certain things that you could then try to either negotiate a, a crystallization or an actual you know event where that crystallization would happen either they're buying you out or you agree to go sell it on the open market so yeah not, that we, not like that we love having to sell anything we'd love to never have to but you know the monetization is important so maybe a crystallization works then. Yep. Then you don't have to exit an asset exactly. like that, which 
you may never might never to, right? come around again. Yep. Yep. When you were building your business to transition now, what did you think about in terms of what you wanted to do versus what you <laughs> didn't want to do? And how did that inform how you set up the business? So, I mean, structure-wise, obviously, fun versus no fun, that was very clear from the beginning. I think geographic concentration, again, was sort of an important part. Part of moving to Florida back down from the New York, New Jersey area was to say, hey, you know, I'm going to, I can do this business from anywhere. I might as well do it from the area that, I tell, that I'm telling everybody else. There's an economic wave of migration moving down here, yep. the taxes, all the other reasons for all that happening. I might as well be an example of that myself. And thankfully, my wife decided she was okay with that too, even being a Jersey girl. And so, you know, from that standpoint, those were some of the bigger pieces. And then, you know, the, the, the easiest term is to use sort of like the no assholes policy. Like, I don't have to be doing this. I'm lucky enough that I don't because of where I came out of Blackstone and how fortunate we were there. So I'm not going to do anything that I don't want to do. And so that's really permeated through the business and, and in finding a partner, you know, in Charleston with the, the Montford, it was sort of the same thing. He had made plenty of money on his own. It was sort of transitioning to the next phase of what he wanted to do on his own. And it was very much one of these things where you, you do it because you want to be doing it, because you love doing it, because it's it's what keeps your mind active and you're interested and, and you know you're actually pretty good at it, you think, right? Not to be overly boisterous on it, but it's it's something that you know you want. So then you're building the culture of the organization that way too, right? Others are coming in to, to work with you because they want to work with you or you know them from a previous life, right? You're picking them off of a different company that you were working with before. An example I gave you before was Crystal England joining us from Canyon Partners after yep. she decided to leave there and make a life change for her and her family moving to Aspen. And we're like, all right, you know what? Well, now we've got a new office in Aspen and, and Crystal's going to head that up. And so it's, an, it's, it's having the personalities and the decision and desire to work with people that you really want to work with, that you enjoy being around and like then celebrating in those successes when they happen and working really hard next to each other because you like doing it. And that's, those are the simple tenets and they sound so simple, but it was really one of the most important pieces of, you know, either a picking a partner or B creating the business, right? It's just that that was one of the most outstanding things. Like, I don't want to have to work with anyone I don't want to work with. And that will be sort of how we guide what we do. It's really cool. You spent like two seconds talking about the business strategy from a investment standpoint and the rest talking about culture and how to build the company. And clearly that's at the forefront. So you said no assholes policy. I assume that means people you're working with, but also potential partners. You mentioned the gentleman in Charleston at the Monford Group. Yeah. How do you pick a partner and how do you find a good partner? Because you've seen a lot at Blackstone. Sure. And, you know, it, it's it's never easy because it's sort of like you're in this awkward corporate dating scene, right? <laughs> to a certain extent. But you trust, you trust the people that you've developed relationships with over the past. So if somebody calls me and, you know, to, to credit to, I'll give credit to Brian Sparacino. He was one of my great friends at Interstate Hotels and Resorts when he was there. He's now got his own company, Rebel Hospitality in New York City. And I was doing the Melby with some partners here in in Florida, in, in Melbourne. And I was telling him about it. And he's like, oh, that's great. And I'm like, you know, I would love to figure out how to find somebody else that has a vision that I do that like has a good ground game and can really get involved. And he's like, are you interested in Charleston? I said, oh my God, I would love Charleston. We couldn't get in there when I was at Blackstone. Right. It was just a tough market to get into. That would be amazing. He's like, you got to meet this guy, Sanjay Patel. 
I said, all right. And he's like, I'm just warning you, he's a little different than you. You're a little buttoned up and he's not <laughs> at all. He is like, you know, I said, all right, let's, let's give it a shot. So, you know, in early, late 2017, early 2018 was the first time we met and, you know, we hit it off really well. And he brings a whole different level of skill sets that, that I don't have. I'm coming from an institutional world and very financially driven. And while I love the people and the design and all of the pieces of the hotel piece, that's not exactly my forte, right? Whereas from him, he's been in the hotels, right? He's coming from that, that background of having been in there, developed things from the ground up and been involved in design choices and, and vision and understanding the programming and all of that type of thing. So together, we were like this powerful force now because we've got both ends of the barbell that both, each of us are bringing different skill sets, not a lot of overlap. And the same thing with our individual teams, my team in, in Florida and his in Charleston, that they didn't have a lot of overlap. And by sort of pulling all that together, we were just like, wow, we just created a real company here that everyone gets along really well. We try to get together as often as we can in person because that's important too. Yep. Often we use the conferences as an excuse just to sort of add on a day and, and like have our little mini retreats together while we're doing that. So we just were together in New York having a great time. But it's really about finding people that you think have a similar goal and expectation in life and how they treat people, how they treat their understanding of what the next three years, five years, seven years, and while you can't always be sure what that's going to look like because deal flow can be sort of fickle, right? You you want to make sure that if you go through a six-month spell where you're not doing acquisitions, you don't have one party like sort of freaking out. They're like, we got to put money out. You know, you want right. to make sure that you're all like, okay, that's fine. We got other stuff we're working on. Let's just keep going, stay calm, move on. We got we got plenty to do. So it really has been, you know, an interesting thing. And as I was mentioning you earlier, we're, we're sort of bringing the two parties together more officially under this TMGOC banner now. So the Montford Group, Optera Capital, and we've, like I said, we've done like $500 million worth of acquisitions together wow. thus far. And we've got a pretty big development pipeline that'll be a couple hundred million in and of itself if everything kicks off over the next 18 months, as we hope. So now the new platform is moving forward together. So you're yeah. not going to be doing your own side deals. He's not going to be doing his own side deals. You're really joining forces in a co-GP, co-sponsor. Correct. So in a, in a sense, we're sort of saying we are one sponsor in, in, in a way. So it's like a merging of that. Like And Crystal, when she joined, actually joined into TMGOC. And other folks that are joining are joining into that TMGOC entity now. So that it's really just one sponsor. We just have two locations or three now in Aspen. But so it's really, you know... The, Everyone says, oh, so you merged. I'm like, well, we didn't really merge, but we just sort of like know we're doing everything and we're just going to be moving forward this way. And as far as the outside world's concerned, we're one company and, and it's working out fantastically. So you developed the Moxie together. Do you right. feel like that was a really important first step to see how each other performed on one deal fully as opposed to having a first date and, and getting married? And on, on top of that, that we started that in earnest in like 19 and we were both putting, you know, we were each writing checks and we're all doing, we did all the pre-development expenses ourselves. Wow. So we had that all ready to go. And we were literally about to hit the launch button for the construction financing and COVID hits. So that's when you learn about people then, right? Because all of a sudden now we have mm -hmm. a lot more capital invested in this dirt and plans that there's no chance of going anywhere for at least some period of time. And at that time you thought maybe never, right? right. And to be able to still get up each morning, get on a Zoom or talk to each other and just figure out what we're doing or, you know, this be able to kind of keep that all going. Because at that point that we hadn't done any deals together yet. So this was the first one. It was going to be great. And then all of a sudden it wasn't, right? And so 
getting through that period of time, we also got to know each other that much more on just a human level, right? Because you're just going through stuff you've never seen before, right? For everybody, COVID had certain impacts on you as a person that you had never experienced and you didn't know how to react to, but you got to see how other people reacted to it. So you get a lot more comfortable knowing somebody that deeply now on a humanistic level than you did in other business frameworks. You know, I wouldn't have been able to get to know them as well as I did just through going through that together. And so we were fortunate enough. We locked we locked in the the equity in November of 2020. We finally locked down the debt in November wow. of 21. And after a hell of a lot of hard work, and then we just delivered in you know April 23. So, so you developed a hotel at the bottom of the real estate. We literally was like the hardest period. We couldn't get people to answer our calls to you know to talk about debt financing of ground up construction in Charleston coming out of COVID. It was it was a nightmare. And thankfully Canyon you know came through, and Crystal was our actual our banker on that one, or on the other side of it. And then that's how we got to know her so well because she was battling right there with us through this whole thing, saying, "I believe in this project. This looks like a great one. I believe in you guys." We're going to get this done. Let's let's go get it done. So forged in the fire. Forged in the fire. Those yeah. are some of the best ones. Yeah, exactly. So during that period, you had to hold the dirt, put money in. You have a very robust development pipeline now. How do you think about tying up deals, investing capital, doing the pre-development costs? Yeah. Do you buy the land first? Do you try and... <laughs> take an option on the land. Yeah. How do you manage that on your balance sheet and with your investors' capital? So, you know, first deal out of the gate with the with the Moxie, there was no real opportunity to get somebody to say, hey, come in early and fund some pre-development expenses. Now that we've got more of a track record and more deals closed with with certain folks and either others, new ones that we're talking to, we're able to negotiate. Number one, we're always going to try to push off buying the land if we can, right? If it makes economic sense or if there's some way to structure that, you do as much of your pre-development before you actually have to close on the dirt or on the building in, in the Savannah example. But we've gotten the, you know, if you want the street cred that that we didn't have before and are able to bring investors in on that early pre-development process and sort of that sharing of the expenses and some of the other things up front is really helpful to to the GP side of the business because Otherwise, it gets to be a really, really big capital drain, right? I'm it sure is. You know that. I'm sure you know that just as well as I do. Yeah. So it's it's a delicate dance each time, and each time you're looking at a new project, you're starting to look at it, saying, "Well, is this something that somebody would find enticing enough to come in early, or are we going to have to carry this 100? percent And what does our cash flow modeling sort of look like around the rest of the business? And is that something we can feasibly feel like we're you know, able to cover on our own. And and so you're putting your sort of accounting hat on and your your business hat on and your investor relations hat on and you're trying to figure out all the different pieces of where this might come from. So what do you think makes a good real estate investor having seen and worked with some of the best? And then also what makes a good asset manager? Because investing is just half the game. Right. You actually have to make money sure. with it and then eventually sell it. No, it's true. You know, I always look back to like some of the early mentors I had at Blackstone in terms of how they looked at just fundamental real estate. And it was really a game, a matter of like understanding what you thought your business plan was and then what are your stress cases and how do you manage like through that? So or if you're down X percent in hotel land, if you're going to be down 10% rev par or this or 15, like when do you stop covering debt? When do you start really hitting, you know, a hard time that you're saying, okay, I'm going to have to either get a capital call or stop servicing debt or those types of things. So from the investor side, I think you got to be an optimist to be an investor by nature, but you have to be realistic in the sense of what your 
planning for on the downside, potential downsides, or some multiple scenarios of potential downsides. Like, okay, would this still be an acceptable outcome if certain things out of our control happened or Redpar declined in the market more than we thought or didn't increase the way that we thought, right? So I think the 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 aspect of sort of understanding what your downside scenarios are and still then saying, okay, I'm comfortable enough to go forward. But it's dangerous that you can get so fixated on the downsides, right? And if you get too fixated on it, then you're not going to do deals, right? You're, you're just going to talk yourself out of stuff that would otherwise be a really good deal. So the there's got to be the optimism and there's got to be the belief in the asset management side after you buy it because that's you're speaking right to, to my heart because that's what I did at Blackstone, right? I was on the asset management side. So I would work with the deal team as soon as we were identified a deal, I'd be in there working with them, creating, helping to create the business plan. And then it would be my problem afterwards. Right. And that was something Blackstone did really well is they had deal guys and then it was a handoff. So that those guys were free to keep going, doing the next thing. Do you like that model? You know, I think there's, I think nobody should ever be absolved of making of what their investments are. And I think if you don't have a feedback loop from asset management back into investments, you're in trouble, right? Because then these guys are just going to be like, dumping it on you. Yeah, exactly. Like, I'm I'm the hunter gatherer. This is my job. I don't care what happens afterwards. You go, you know, deal with it. But so I think the, you know, the Blackstone model was good in that way because nobody really got off the hook. They were still sitting through the quarterly meetings, like to talk Mm. about asset performance. So they would still, you know, have me come back and, and sort of still own a little bit of it. And even, and to a certain extent would then challenge the asset managers, right? Saying, well, I thought we were going to do this. What happened? What, what changed on the ground that made you guys pivot to go into this particular strategy? So it was a constant sort of feedback loop, which was good. And I think that same thing is, is really important that the, the asset managers are super important because they're telling you what's happening now, yesterday, today, what they're seeing 90 days out, 120 days out, all of those types of things. And so without that, you can't be a good investor if you're not having that feedback coming back from what's really happening because exactly. you can make a model say anything you want. So that's easy, yep. right? I mean, we can, we can put any Revar penetration we want to on there and, and, but can you achieve it really? And, and to do so, what's are the, what are the underlying steps that really need to happen? So, so we put a big emphasis on the asset management side. We're, we're constantly trying to find new ways to invest in, in sort of technology to help us. Cause as you get bigger, right, you're multiple, you know, dozens of assets now. And so you get, a ton of information, but how do you make it all useful? So we're, we're looking, you know, we're working with a group called Hobie Solutions that sort of works on getting all of our stuff into a single platform. So we've got different managers that are all reporting in yeah. different formats, right? This all brings it into MicroStrategy. I can just see it on my iPad. I can see across every one of mine. It doesn't matter which manager it is. I can see, or I can isolate two assets out of 13 instead of that. So we're, we work closely with those guys to sort of help then say, okay, this is how we're informing our future investment strategy. It's like, this is what we're seeing on the ground. We've got great data. Let's use that data. And that was the other thing that was great about Blackstone. Probably the hardest thing to leave, not only the people, I miss a lot of folks that I work with, but boy, did you just get data dumped at your lap? Like it was just, everybody's calling you, everybody's dumping it in. So you had just incredible data. And now as a smaller guys, you got to, you got to work hard to find dig. it. You got to dig, right? Yeah. You got to either pay for it or you got to call yeah. and just like constantly be working the phones and doing all that stuff. So listen, it's, you know, the investment side is not separated at all from the asset management side. They're integral parts and they, they got to work very closely together. So on this asset management platform that you're developing, what yeah. are the key metrics that you find yourself always wanting to look at monthly and quarterly because you don't manage any of your correct hotels, yeah, we're third party so managing on all of that. Yeah. Got it. So from our standpoint, hyper focusing on 
cost per occupied room metrics across it. And because so a lot of our portfolios select service in relatively similar, you know, positioning. So there shouldn't be other than maybe certain geographic pay scales that should be slightly differently. There shouldn't be a lot of variance across a lot of that unless certain things are just not working well. So you can get certain key key concerns out of the way pretty quick if you can be looking across your own data as well as then there's a lot of great data out there now that you know stars collecting and, and hot stats and others that they didn't have before that you can sort of start also geographically aligning yourself with that type of thing so obviously revenue is always the top of mind everyone's saying oh revenue red par where are we what's our index how are we doing and all that and that's always going to be there but really especially today with expenses growing so fast that managing that level and making sure the manager knows you're focusing on that piece of it and that they're not going to get a free pass every time they keep sort of missing budget or their GOP flow sucks for some reason. You, you know, for me, that area of focus is one where we want to constantly concentrate because that's just lost dollars. You're working really hard. You're bringing in these great Southeastern top line gains right now. And if you're not bringing it down at the bottom level, you're working for nothing. Right. And it's do hard. you have all different managers or are you using one manager now? So we've been working, we've got Ambridge in quite a few of ours and okay. they've been good partners. The, you know, the, a lot of the old interstate guys and even Ambridge guys were, were close friends when I was at Blackstone. So we were able to work with them as great partners to help us leverage our size and scale, you know, cause they have that. Right. And so, you know, we do get a lot of data coming out of Ambridge, but we're constantly talking to other managers too. And you know, sometimes deal flow can come that way too. And those types of things. So we're not married to any one particular one, but we've, we've been very, very closely aligned with Ambridge thus far. And what is something that one of those managers, whether it's Ambridge or someone else that you've seen, or you've spoken to that you think they do something that you think they do incredibly well, that you find very valuable as an asset manager? Huh? You know, I never like to tell my managers they're doing a great job because then, you know, well, you don't, what, what don't I get tell to me which one. <laughs> exactly. If it's only Ambridge and don't answer the question. <laughs> I have another question about yeah. that. Okay. So every kind of emerging third-party manager that I speak to, I think a part of their pitch includes Ambridge. Ambridge is too uh, big. Anti-Ambridge. Anti-Ambridge. Yeah, right, right. Every single manager except sure. Ambridge is anti-Ambridge. Right. You've had a good relationship with Ambridge. So yeah. I don't want this to be a pitch or a knock against sure. Ambridge. But clearly at their scale, they've been able to achieve success and find success. What are these other people trying to unlock that is founded or unfounded yeah. based on your experience dealing with a variety of managers? Yeah. And I'm, I'm sure you found this in your experience that the the management company is as good as the either GM or AGM or director of sales that you've got in the box a lot of times, right? There's going to be systems and, you know, purchasing power and like all of the things that they'll tell you they can do great. And generally they can, but the, the, if you lose that great GM and it takes a while to replace them, you know, you're going to see that instantaneously. And it doesn't matter if it's a small outfit or an Ambridge, it hurts, right? So yep. from, from our standpoint, we're, very focused on trying to make sure we are, you know, in touch with our GMs too, not obviously crossing any lines, but you know, they're, they're part of our team as much as they're part of Ambridge's team or anybody else's team in our sense, right? You're like, you're, you're in our hotel, you're welcoming our guests. You are a critical part of our team. And how do we make sure you're getting what you need? Right. And a lot of times that's like, Hey, I need CapEx, <laughs> right? It's like our elevators doing this or this or that. And so wherever we can like write a check to help solve a problem, we're making sure we're all over that when we can. You know, I would tell you, Ambridge has got 
scale. And that also helps if you do lose that person, that there's depth. And so a lot of times where the smaller management groups might have trouble is they don't have a bench where they can just quickly replace somebody. Now, maybe that's not going to be the permanent person, but it's not as if you're missing somebody that's experienced and they might be task force and they're only going to be there for X number of months, but they're task force, they're experienced, and they can at least hopefully be minding the store while you're filling in that other one. Sometimes with the smaller groups, if you lose that person, they don't have somebody else they can go to. They're just asking the AGM to step up or the regional has to come in and sort of babysit for a while. And they're not, they're also distracted by a lot of other things. So it doesn't really work out as well. So I don't know. There's no perfect model, right? And and we don't do a lot of, we haven't done any management in-house. It's, you know, it's not something that's really part of our core business plan, but, you know, never say never. Who knows? So when you're setting up Optera, you clearly have a smaller balance sheet, smaller free cash flow than Blackstone. How do you think about creating the investment side of the business, the acquisition side, and the asset management side? And I'll dovetail that with you're a smaller entrepreneurial company now. Right. So are there th- things and processes that you tried to institute that you're like, wait a second, this is ridiculous. Like, <laughs> I don't need a standing weekly pipeline meeting because I talk to this guy every day. Right, right. We we do a, maybe a little bit more than that you would think because we have the various offices. And so in order to keep everybody sort of on track and you do have teams that are working like somebody in the Boca office is working with the Charleston office on something very specific, but you want to make sure that they're that they're crossing over and sort of reporting back that, yeah, that got done or no, we hit a roadblock on X, Y, or Z. So, you know, I we still do a Monday weekly call, right? And that was what I was doing right before I came in to, to see you is that I think the discipline of having that was something that was beaten to our heads in Blackstone, like the Monday morning. They, they even made like a, you know, the video, a is YouTube great video on YouTube. About it. Yeah, yeah, it's great. And it was true to form. That was exactly what it was. But it was something that I felt like created the right discipline, had people prepared on that Monday to come in and talk about what they're going to, what they accomplished last week, what they're going to get done this week, set the priorities, understand where things stand, bring up any problems that might be going on in the portfolio, those types of things. So from that standpoint, even though we are, we're relatively small, that, that's still a really important aspect of our of our business is to have those weekly meetings, not to over meeting ourselves to death. You know, if there's something that's critical and, and very specific, you set that up separately with with whomever needs to be on it, not the whole group. But getting the whole group on the thing and having the first five minutes sort of chit chatting about the weekend and who golfed this or did whatever, you know, it's fun. It's sort of connecting in a way. The challenge there is making it relevant and not just sort of like, okay, going down the list, boring, you know, everybody's snoozing and turning their screen off and not paying attention. Right. But well, we started doing that pre-COVID. I had a lot of cultural problems in in my own business that Mm -hmm. I really, really, we really had to work on fixing. And now our team and the culture is night and day from pre-COVID. And one of the key points was this Monday morning, we call it Monday morning coffee. And it's also, you know, the first part of it is a little bit kind of camaraderie, team building, what did everyone do on the weekend? What's going on? Need to know for a bigger group, sometimes views from the top, views from others. But then we have a smaller breakout meeting after where we kind of go around the horn, just like you're saying, and talk about more specific things. Can you unpack for me a little bit more about what your Monday morning, Monday afternoon meeting looks like? Well, I think we we break it into sort of what's under review and under diligence and sort of like, what are we tracking against? So, you know, we will we'll have our acquisitions associates sort of going through, okay, here's the status. This one, the call for offers is coming up middle of the next week. I talked to the broker or he, or he may have gone and toured the asset and he's given a report back on 
you know, whether or not our CapEx estimate was right or not, or those types of things. So we're getting into each of that, that sort of detail and, and talking about the, the potential pipeline of deals. And then we move into the development side of it because we do have, you know, a couple of pre-development things that are then like, okay, what are the next major steps? Who do we need to get in front of? Do we have a historic review commission meeting coming up in two weeks? How are we doing and progressing against that? And then within that, we move into sort of an asset management of the existing things, staying a little more high level. If there's problems or something, we got to go deal with. Separately. Is there a dashboard you look at on there the asset is, management? Yeah. So we, we have a we have a standard dashboard. We actually use Asana, which is a you know a third party yeah. app that we so we built our own sort of customized dashboard that we keep everything tracked, and so it keeps everybody uh, with assignments inside of that, and they're reporting, they're sort of checking off against that when they complete things, and keeps the people honest relative to how that works. I like that. You know, it's a tool, right? Everyone's got to sort of know what they're supposed to be doing, but it's a, at least a tool to keep everybody accountable from that standpoint. So, you know, there's other other ones that are out there that I've heard of, but and none that I've heard anybody championing saying, oh, this is perfect for the real estate industry. You know, Asana, I think is really good for project management for other groups like advertising or marketing campaigns and all that. We, we just happen to use it for our pipeline calls. So, yeah, we've been trying to use a platform called Trello, which is similar to Asana. Okay. And I've liked it. It's just, Getting into the habit, getting into the ritual takes a lot from the person that wants to right. institute it. Sure. It takes full buy-in, but you also have to bridge that fine line between over-optimizing. Yeah, don't yeah. let the system overtake the process. Right? Exactly. Like, yeah, it's exactly. True. Yeah, it's never easy. You'd love, you know, I always say, I was like, God, I'd love if, you know, if we we're going to be a Microsoft shop, then I'd love the teams had a little bit more. And I'm sure there's aspects. So I've challenged some team members like, Go figure, Microsoft's got to have an answer to this, right? right? Like, go figure out how we can just keep it all in within the same, exactly the same cohesive universe, right? Yeah, you would love to keep it in the bundle because nothing ever really collaborates as well outside of the bundle as it should. But I don't know. I'm just, I'm probably just too old to know how to use it all anymore. So it's it's changing fast. Yeah, no doubt. From a fundamental level, what is your acquisitions process look like? You haven't done an acquisition in a couple months. You have yep. some development deals in the pipeline, but do you follow like a pretty standard process, whether a deal's off market or on market as to how it comes through Optera? Yeah, I think it, it it doesn't really depend on how it comes in. It really is then the same process in the sense that we've got, you know, modeling is always an important aspect. It can't be the only aspect, but it, it sort of gives you what we call the pencil model, right? It's like a sort of a, I used to call it the dummy model and people told me I shouldn't use that anymore. Like, I think it's okay. Yeah. I mean, it's like, we I call I it had, a Sharpie model. I had like this, the, you know, the most simplistic, like, you know, two page Excel, two tab Excel workbook that I used early on before the team got bigger that I would be like, all right, this doesn't really work for us, you know? So now we call it the pencil model. It's definitely got a lot more features than it used to have, but it does the deal pencil. It's that simple, right? Like, okay, even if you do nothing more than just take, you know, very simplistic, either growth or expense growth or revenue growth assumptions, lay out what that is and what is it going to come out or what do you have to believe on the exit to make this thing work at, at these levels? What sort of debt scenarios? You know, if you put all of that in, it sort of spits something out that's like, all right, let's, this is worth building the full model or the full, let's dig in more and figure out whether it's worth doing that. So there's the the screening test, I guess you would say. And it's screened not only just from met financial metrics, but just sort of market. You know, is there a ton of new supply coming in? Do we think the demand patterns are going to hold up or is, there, is that abating already in certain places? And and or are there other challenges to, to, to the investment that we just don't want to take on, whether it's, you know, adjacent land or adjacent, you know, some other use that, you know, isn't core to what we want to do or those types of things. So, you know, it, it really comes down to these meetings and kind of trying to 
say, we've got limited resources because we're a smaller shop. So we have to filter quickly and kill what doesn't work. And because if you could, you could spend hours talking about it and you just know in the back of your mind, this is not our deal. This is not going to work. I'm never doing this. When do you go see it? Move it on. It's a good question. You know, I don't know. I have a hard and fast rule for it. That's a little bit more gut. And, and the nice part is we're a little bit dispersed. So different people can get to different markets pretty quick. So, you know, in, in the beauty of the, the concentration geographically is you can get to stuff pretty easily. I always like somebody has to see it though. You know, by the time we're going to talk to an investor, somebody's going to have to have boots on the ground first. I can't, I couldn't stand being on a call and saying, well, what, who, so who went and looked at it? Did you like it? And like, well, it looked great from the OM. I mean, that would be horrifying, <laughs> right? I mean, I would be so mad if I was on the other side of that saying, this is the standard of your diligence that you're calling me to talk, you know, pitch this deal. And you haven't even had anybody, you know, it's go crazy. kick the tire. Right. So. Someone just told me recently, you can actually do Google Street View yeah. and scroll back the years. So you can see what's changed in a neighborhood over a couple of years yeah. from the same location, which is pretty interesting. We play around with that yeah. a little bit. Which is which is great just to help you get to that fill or kill type of thing right yeah. away, but you still better go see it, right? You gotta go like take a picture of, like you were there. Right? And what about on the CapEx side? Cause yeah. it used to, like we were talking about this at lunch where yeah. us hotel people used to have a gut, like a bathroom was 7,500 right. or 10,000, whatever yeah. it is. And now it's completely different. How do you think about CapEx in these value add projects during yeah. due diligence? So it's a little harder before we had a number of deals in the shop. Now you've got real-time pricing that we're going through, right? So of the renovations we're going in, we know, hey, we used 13.5 for the bathroom and it's actually coming out 14.5 now. It's insane as that is. Like, okay, we need to make sure we're, you know, we can't just complain about it. We have to update the model. You got to update the next one to figure it out. You're not going to, or, you know, you don't make sure that there wasn't something very specific in that hotel that was causing that to come in a little bit higher. But, you know, so the the best data you've got is your own. And then, you know, the other aspect of it from from our team is that great industry contacts. So, you know, call Jake. What is yeah. he, see what, he's, what is it costing him to do this? Who's he using? You know, like what what contractor is he using? Who does he like? Those types of things. Like, so one thing I love about this this industry as well is that, you know, you and I could be on the opposite end of a deal sometime, right? Or both competing for the same one. Yep. But we'll sit here and talk about it like, yep. we're, like we were at lunch. So like, oh, did you look at that deal? Yeah, I looked at that one. I, I didn't, didn't work for us, but I'm glad. You know, so this this business is great that way. I mean, and I, I think generally, have- I think generally people are, are happy to share their thoughts about something. Yes. You may not always want to hear it because you may be like, oh, I'm hard on this deal. Like, oh, dude, you're overpaying so much for that. <laughs> like, there's there's nothing worse you could hear from somebody. But you need to have market, the friends that will tell you that. Yeah, you do. You absolutely do. One you of know. the things that I learned from one of our partners that they do on every single deal is they call people that they know in the market and get kind of like fact checks and they write it into their deal memo. Spoke nice. to right. Glenn. He said, Charleston's a great market. We're on the worst street. You know, yeah. And have that inside information. Sure. Some of our other partners, though, have a mentality on the bigger institutional side where they've trained their people to be incredibly guarded. Yes. You know, even if we're yeah. going to joint venture on a deal, they sometimes won't even share their own underwriting. Yeah. I'm like, dude, we're partners. Like, you, you need to send me your model. <laughs> exactly. How do you think about that? And it seems like you're more abundant. We're more mindset. on the transparent side. I mean, you obviously have to be a little careful if you're in some form of competitive process because you don't know who else you might be either competing against or that has an ulterior motive for telling you something that you don't want to hear about it. Right. But again, I don't, I just, you know, as the optimist, I generally want to believe that people are rooting for you, that they have your best interest. And look, you got 
you've got trusted sources you know you're going to go to that can hopefully be either independent too. So whether it's somebody in the brokerage world that's not working on that particular deal, but you know they worked on three others and they know that market inside and out and those types of things where you can trust even if they said the same thing to somebody else, they're not going to tell you that you're working on it, Jake, or Jake, right. not going to tell Jake that I'm working on it, those types of things. So it, it's a relationship business in so many different ways, whether it's in the lender community or the brokerage community, the the sales community, the the brands, the managers, like all of those things. There's so many touch points where, you know, it's, it's why I tell my team, like, even if you're, even if you're upset with somebody about something that might've happened, it's not worth like losing your mind over it and like torching a relationship type of thing, because you don't know when, where that might come back. Right. And so it's one of these things where you just got to keep, you got to just keep a level head about it and you got to work through what you can. And so it, to me, the the relationship aspect of this business is the best part. So something that I think John Gray had said is like, there's no, there's no upside to making enemies. You can be fierce competitors, but you don't have to be an enemy at the end of the day, right? So comp- compete fairly, compete fiercely, but at the end of the day, you know, shake each other's hands and, and go from there. It is really cool. I remember a story when you had owned Pier 66 here in Fort Lauderdale yeah. with Blackstone. I lived adjacent. I had probably just started my company. Maybe this was like, I don't know, 2013, 14, something like that. And I emailed John Gray directly and I asked him about Pier 66. I said like, hey, if you guys are ever interested in selling, I think this is a tremendous asset. I'd love to buy it. And he responded within 20 minutes. And I thought that was like the coolest thing yeah. that someone at that level is responding and so in tune with their portfolio. And that always had an impact on me is just how I think about people and relationships and talking about deals in our community. It's his capacity for knowing everything about the business, even when it was just real estate. Now that he's, you know, COO over all of the businesses, I talked to some folks that are in another line of business. They're like, how does John Gray remember all this stuff? And I was like, well, he, when it was only real estate, he knew every intricate detail about every deal. And now I can't imagine how much he knows about all the various lines. So yeah, he's a, he's a tremendous, tremendous mind in the business and a, just a tremendous personality. He's, he's, he's just, he is, he is what he is. He wears, you know, there's no real agenda there. He loves what he does and he's really smart and he knows what he wants. And so he generally gets all of it. Right? So. I want to transition to kind of a little bit of the strategy side in the future. Yeah. I'm curious to know if you think there's a blank space in hospitality investing right now, whether it's development or some value-added conversion or a combination thereof, where a lot of people are not focusing on it. Maybe some people are missing it. Maybe institutions haven't gotten in. Is there anything that comes to mind where you think is just kind of tremendous seed stage opportunity right now? I don't know if I see like a real revolutionary change where you're going to say there's so many office buildings that can be converted or, you know, obviously office is the dirty word in, in real estate right now and, and is struggling through, through what it's going through where, where I think, you know, I'm still trying to figure out relative to this mid scale extended stay opportunity that seems to be coming out from all of the, the various brands, right? They see extended stay America being really strong at it. And now so Marriott Hilton, Hyatt have all announced these. And I think that is sort of a hybrid workforce housing slash hotel opportunity. It might have the uh, the opportunity of getting overbuilt very quickly. So I'm not sure exactly how much space there is for it. I do think, you know, you, you somebody who speaks really eloquently on is Mitch Shaw from Noble, right? He 
he has a, a an idea right right now is a sort of a golden moment for that area. It's sort of it fills a housing need to a certain extent for short term housing as well as can handle some transient. But if you get that length of stay, that business model is really powerful, and you're getting back to you know operating margins that that are really pretty interesting. So it's not revolutionary by any stretch, but I do think that the the brand sort of opening this new category that wasn't there before is going to open a lot of you know regional development opportunity, I think. And so we're exploring whether or not that isn't an area we want to try to go in fairly heavily programmatically, heavily meaning, you know, five, 10, 15, perhaps over the next three, three something years with, with some sort of a partner that said, you know, we like that space, you know, build it and let's, let's figure out a way to monetize throughout and, or build a portfolio that could ultimately be monetized at the end. So that's one that we're ultimately, you know, working on right now. I think the advent of sort of technology, and this will be more in the box as opposed to, you know, outside the box, the advent of, and it's been talked about for years, so I don't know when it might actually fully be implemented, but there's a lot more that I think in the cost can get taken out of the box through the use of, you know, types of technology and the customers getting more and more trained to digital keys and certain things that they want to avoid, right? The, the check-in desk experience isn't necessarily a warm welcome every time. It's somewhat of a you know, droned, you know, like waiting and can be a dissatisfier as opposed to a satisfier. So you want to, I think hotels want to try to change that aspect into how do yeah. we, how do we do the warm welcome, get the nonsense out of the way quickly, like of the room keys and the billing and all of that stuff and just focus on like, thanks for coming. What can we do for you? Do you want a drink? You want this right. that type of thing? And then whether or not there's more opportunities to, to figure out how that you can take costs out of the box relative to just either cleaning or hallways and, you know, robots and all the stuff that's coming. I, I don't know well enough how that, where that is or where that goes, but, you know, I think that at the end of the day, it's still real estate. So there's still a certain aspect of it that is, you know, hard to be super innovative in this space. Now I could just be wrong and I'm not seeing it yet, but so if anybody out there listening has great ideas, give us a call. We'll happily listen. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I tend to agree with you. Mitch Shaw actually came out and said something recently on this mid-scale extended stay yeah. product. And I'm pretty active on Twitter and a lot of people reach out to me and they're telling me that in some cases, these are people that want to break into the hospitality business. They see maybe multi is a bit too crowded mm -hmm. and, you know, Airbnbs aren't providing them the scale. You know, they're like buying extended stay America product, yeah. deflagging it and running it as like you and I would call it like a motel, like right. a mom and pop, like selling rooms by the week. Mm -hmm. And it's exactly what you said. It's like workforce housing effectively for people maybe that are doing a project or a construction job in the area, but it's another way for other entrants to break into the hospitality business. That I think is way more interesting than some of these non-real estate hospitality and businesses that are leasing spaces like Sonder right. or whatever it is, Vacasa, like some of these other ones where, you know, maybe they're just furnished apartments, but they don't own the real estate. Right. And they're stripping all the services away. So yeah, what are they? It's a it's a tough model. They have that sort of operating lease model, right? They would I'm sure they would love to just be a pure manager, so they could just charge off the fee, and then the owner, you know, has all the risk, right? Yeah. But yeah, I, I agree with you. I don't I don't know where that particular space goes. This, I think, as you've seen, housing prices in a lot of areas in the country get more expensive. Mortgage rates are super high. I think there's this. You know, if you want to call it that gold moment for that need of that space in the in the hotel, I I would tend to agree that there's probably a good opportunity there. 
it just ultimately, like I said, the, the thing that always worries me at the end of the day as a real estate investor is like how much supply gets added, how quickly, and is there really that much differentiation between a Hyatt Studios and whatever Hilton's going to call theirs and whatever Marriott's going to call theirs, right? And so, so how becomes, would you mitigate that in your strategy? Because I think that early, is the problem. early like, adoption and early exit, right? I think is the only way you could probably do it, and you adapt as you're going along. If you're seeing like, oh, it's not getting added as fast as I thought, then we can keep doing it. And if it is, then you're like, okay, we're we just hit our ninth and we're going to, that's, that's it. That's good enough. Or whatever number ends up being, being enough at that particular time. But, Do you think it's more interesting in an urban environment where costs are higher, supply is more limited, or is the idea to go and build it cheap? And yeah, I think for these particular ones, I think the idea is to find land that is, you know, maybe tertiary. Yeah. You're right. not looking for something off the interstate interchange. You're looking for stuff that's already built into sort of communities that are, you know, garden level apartments, class B, class C type stuff. And, you know, there's, there's, there's unfortunately an element of population out there that can't afford security deposits and down payments and things. And this offers a form of housing for some period of time that, that would be there. And you, you need that for that business model. You need that length of stay, right? You, if you're, if you're changing the sheets every night because people are checking in, checking out one night stays, it's not going to work in that particular box. Cause you're trying to keep your FTE countdown, you know, whether six or eight in the, in the whole box. Right. So it's really about thinking more like a multifamily operator mindset than it is a hotel operator mindset. Cause you're trying to get that length of stay component piece to be a much larger stay, much larger component than your short stay. Stuff. Right. And you price it accordingly as well. Right. So no services once a week, sort of light touch housekeeping, like that yep. type of stuff is, is the only way that's going to work. So what happened or, or well, let me ask you this way. What about what transpired over the past three years is informing your decisions for the next five years? And what are you seeing your investing strategy point to? Well, outside of interest rates? Outside of, well, <laughs> you can talk about interest right? rates. Right. I mean, how Because you you're going to have to navigate that too. I mean, right. are interest rates actually changing your investment strategy in terms of what assets? what asset classes, what markets that you're focusing on, or are you thinking that everyone has to deal with it? I'm right. smart. I'm just going to figure it out. I, well, look, it just, it's made, what it's made is the assumptions on what is, where are hotel exit cap rates for sp certain elements now and where might they still go to if they're going to sort of expand still. So it's, it's really, you can, you can model the the buy. You know what you're going to be paying. You're, whether you're going to fix that or, or figure out a way to sort of mitigate near term further increases in, in rates or not, it's really calls into question a little bit more of the exit. Saying, okay, if I'm holding this for five years, what what are hotel exit cap rates going to be at that point? Where do we think interest rates are going to be at that point? And so it, it does impact a little bit, not so much in the strategy of what we want to buy, but it's sort of how we're underwriting and and what do we what does the reversion value mean towards your return? Because it's harder to get your current cash flow now because, you know, debt's more expensive, right? So you're using more of your available cash flow to service debt than you used to be able to. So therefore your yield on, you know, your cash on cash return component is generally a little bit lower than where you were enjoying it, you know, right. for the deals we did two years ago. So because of that, you have to be a lot more careful on what you're believing on the exit. Now, because it's not a problem that you're going to have today. It's a problem you're going to have four years or five years from now when you're saying, okay, we're going to go try to exit. I'm like, oh, well, you know what? They, what we thought was an eight cap are now nine, nine and a quarter caps. Like if that's what you believe, it makes it a lot harder. So you've got to, it's investing in 
what we're still trying to focus on is saying, okay, we need to be in product that we think is durable from a cap rate perspective and in markets that we think are going to be durable from that standpoint. So again, Southeastern generally, but then very specifically like markets like Charleston, like Savannah, like those that we think are going to be constantly having barriers to entry and harder to get into are going to hold those cap rates for the exit value that is going to come later because it's more expensive to, to get there now. Cap rates don't seem to be a very good barometer for interest rates because interest rates have moved 500 basis points, yeah. but cap rates haven't widened 500 basis no. points. Or maybe that's why deals aren't getting done, but it seems like cap rates more so are pointing to what you're suggesting, which is a concept of risk. Whereas apartments, the cap rate reflects the risk and maybe that's four or 5%. Yeah. Hotels maybe are somewhere between seven, eight, 9%. And that's what a cap rate is as opposed to something tied to interest rates. Yeah, I, 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 I totally agree with you. And I think that where where my concern only comes in is this thing that it's a it's sort of a lagging indicator too so maybe we haven't seen it yet but maybe it's is it still coming right and as more people have been able to hold on saying okay i had floating rate debt and now it sucks as my distributable cash flow is cut in half but i'm still servicing the debt i'm still able to return a little bit on needed investors you know but my refinancing date is now two years out you know or one year out or whatever that might be as and when we might start seeing some of that forced sale or, you know, they're not going to be able to get that extension on the loan or anything like that, there there might be that natural force that pushes cap rates up a little bit. I don't I agree with you. I don't see it yet, especially, I mean, forget San Francisco or Chicago or the areas where you just don't know where to price anything right now. You're not buying anything in San Francisco right no, now, are you? No, no. That crosses that bright red line across yeah. California that what I- What about own. Chicago? That seems to be like not on the- other yeah. side of the red line. But no, it's not. Still, it's, it's pretty scary. It's enticing because it seems like, hey, there's going to be opportunity and there's a lot of distress there. Just You just don't know when, you know, when's the right entry point. And there's still certain systemic issues relative to, you know, downtown perceived safety relative to taxes in Illinois that are very expensive. Real it's estate also taxes. cold and windy. It's cold and windy. Right? So who wants to it's go there on an thing. asset visit when, you're, real thing. when we're living in paradise down here, right? Yeah. So yeah, I I think we're you know we haven't really focused on Chicago much and and or don't plan to I don't think in the near near future but there will be people that are gonna you know look at, at any time when it gets really dark that's when people are gonna go in with some capital and make some good buys that over time are gonna prove them right there's just still I think some structural headwinds in some of these markets whether it's you know union labor that costs that much more or other you know issues where it's that much harder to drop money to the bottom line for the owner that the risk return is just not there yet. I want to end on selling. <laughs> and you led this at your time at Blackstone. So yep. I assume you're really good at it. Two things. How do you know when to sell and how do people think about that? Is it only time tied to kind of fun life and what you told your investors? Or is there maybe something more technical outside of the obvious? And then also, I think, I don't know if they were doing this at Blackstone when you were there, but Blackstone had this concept where, you know, like you go hard right at the beginning. Mm-hmm. You don't do due diligence and then you go hard. You just go hard right at the beginning and then weed out all these people. Right. So is that your concept that you created? <laughs> Listen, I, I've I've been buying a few assets from from Blackstone, others that are like that, and I I hate being on the receiving end of like the here here's the PSA, mark it up and tell us how much you're willing to go hard today today. Right. So that is that is not a fun experience on the buy side, and I think that that will not be in a, you know necessarily one of our playbooks from that standpoint. I think that it does weed out some of the 
non-serious players. So that's helpful. But I think at the same time, it might move certain players to, to not want to engage just because they're not comfortable with that format or. Yeah. So I don't know that you're getting the best market out of that from, from that standpoint. So I think, you know, we, the, the very famous mantra from Blackstone was always buy it, fix it, sell it. Don't get emotionally attached, move on, you know, do the, do what's supposed to get done and then, and then sell the, I think from a, from a sponsor operating platform where we are is that it's still very much similar to that, that it's just that, you know, we might have a little bit more patient capital on, on our side now that isn't, that is saying, you know what, we're enjoying these, these cash on cash, cash returns yeah. and the cash flow is exactly what we want. And by the way, if you give me this money back, I got to go figure out something else to do with it. And I'm not sure I really want that today. So it's a little different from, from that standpoint, we're working more with investors that have visibility into our business. We're happy to give that to them. They're, we're very transparent and and they provide great advice. They're very smart in and of themselves, just from different industries. So it's almost as if I've got, you know, this great board of directors that, that from that standpoint, where we talk, we reach out to them, you know, every couple of months to say, here's what's going on. Here's what we're thinking. Maybe it's time to take some money off the table in this particular asset. Okay, great. Why don't you go give it a shot, see what happens, you know, those types of things. So it's very much, I think, led by you know, what market are you in? Did you, do you feel like you finished everything that you can finish and that that's time for somebody else to take on, take on the next piece of it? We're, we're certainly, you know, been more in ramp up investment phase, right? So from 21 till today, we've, we've been in net acquiring mode and we did sell one asset that, that was a great sale in, in Melbourne, Florida was a ground up development that it was driven a little bit by our capital partner saying, guys, this is going so well. The market at this time in early 22 you was sort really of like hot. the peak of the market. I mean, we hit the timing really, really yeah. well, no doubt. So, you know, credit a little bit to them for asking the question, like, should we consider it? We sort of felt it was a little early, but people were willing to look through it and price to the future earning potential. And and so when that happened and, you know, we had great brokers working on it for us and, and our team at CBRE out of Miami, and they, they did a great job. We would have loved to have figured out a way to stay in that deal, unfortunately, but you know, you never, you never cry over a good print on a, on a profit from track records and track records important, no doubt. So there's no magic formula for us. I think from the standpoint, it's really about when do you feel that there's the right time to maybe take some of the chips off the table? Even if you're maybe leaving some additional upside up there, you need to have some of that for the next buyer to be able to, to sell their business plan to their investor set or whoever it might be. And so, you know, don't get too greedy, you know, time to, when it's time to take some profit, go ahead and do that, book it and, and move on to the next one. All right. I promise. Last question. And then I'm going to go into the final question, but related okay. to the sale, did you find based on your experience, your career, that it's best to do a renovation or some CapEx program right before you sell it? Or do you think there's some value, maybe if you've held it for a longer period, to maybe leave that renovation for someone else and not actually spend the dollars and in another way to distribute them. Right. I, I think it's definitely more towards that ladder. I think there's always going to be an early upfront capital phase that you're as the buyer saying, if I go do bathrooms, corridors, you know, soft goods, this, that, and the other thing, I'm going to get the 10 bucks in rate and I'm going to prove that model. And I'm by year three, three and a half, I'll be stabilized. And then yeah, maybe we didn't touch the meeting space like that. Right. And if we had, maybe there was additional more to do there. But I do think that, again, sort of leaving a little bit of meat on the bone and and or now there's times where we got stuck in an asset a lot longer than we thought we were going to be when I was at Blackstone, right? Sometimes we sold great and it, everything worked out well. Other times market conditions didn't allow for that sale. So you had to go do it. And if you didn't, then you were starting to see degradation of your actual underlying performance, which was 
you know, not good. So I think from the standpoint of if there's the choice of if you're going to just renovate and then immediately sell, I don't think you get their ROI on those capital dollars the same way as you do saying letting somebody else just sort of buy it and not spending that capital. And, and if you can get it sold and not have to spend it, I think your your ROI is infinitely better than than going in and spending it and then hoping that they're going to pay you for that potential upside and premium that you haven't achieved yet. I think they're going to discount that personally. I know I would. Interesting. <laughs> I ask all the guests in the podcast the same traditional closing question, and that is, what is your favorite hotel, not in your own portfolio, throughout the world? Wow. Throughout the whole world, that's such a big place. I would say in the US, one of the special places on earth, and they've just spent a lot more money, but it was owned by Blackstone. So it was the Del Coronado and just really amazing, special place to be. So, you know, we had great family vacation there right after I left Blackstone. So for me, it was also a special like relief. We was a relief. We went to Colorado, visited my family, and then we went to Hawaii. And then on the way back, we we hit California. And it was just one of these things where I couldn't believe that, you know, how few emails I was getting. It was sort of going through PTSD, but at the same time, the Dell was just just amazing. So Blackstone just put a lot a significant amount of money in it. One of my colleagues actually just went and came back from there and was raving about what a great wow. job they did. So, and they just refied it, I think, as well. I right? believe they did. Yeah. Well, they built you know a whole another set of residences and things there. Long range business plan for them, and they apparently did a great job. So now I've got an excuse to go back. And yeah, you got to go again, back because I haven't, I haven't seen it. Hundred so, percent. Yeah. So that one carries a special place in the heart. So amazing. This yep. was a lot of fun. Thanks for having Hopefully me. Hopefully, we can do a deal together. Exactly. If not, we can watch each other grow and succeed. I'm really exactly. happy for everything you've built. And it's been awesome getting to know you. Yeah, you too, Jake. Thanks Thanks for coming on the podcast. Hey, everyone. It's Jake here. Thanks again for joining me on this conversation. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or YouTube. Lastly, don't forget to follow me on Twitter at Jay Warzak. I'll see you in the next episode. Jake Warzak is the founder and CEO of Dove Hill Capital Management. All opinions expressed by Jake and his guests are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Dove Hill Capital Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and does not reflect or represent real estate, financial, or investment advice.